Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. I had changed in the blink of an eye. I had been this good Catholic girl. I was a virgin until my first year of college. And just like everything changed, I became a political radical. I just wanted to break out from my, my family. So we never got to talk about sex. We were just told, don't do it. That was it. That was it. That was it. That was it. Just don't do it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Jessica Hankin. And I'm Laura Wexler. And this week, we kick off a three-part series featuring stories about the experience of both providing and receiving abortion care. Our series is called Abortion is Autonomy, and this is the first part. Today, we begin with two very different stories that reveal the financial challenge of paying for abortion care. This first story is shared by Anna, who was a young woman in the 1960s living in Baltimore who found herself pregnant. So I grew up in Baltimore. Um, I was in a working class family, five kids, two parents above my Sicilian grandparents in Lower Park Heights, Pimlico. And uh, it was a tight neighborhood. You couldn't get away with anything without mama knowing before you hit the front door um, because she had this network of people. Um, <laughs> my dad was a, a, a World War II vet, union man, very loyal union man. Always talked about his union brothers and sisters. There was a lot of strikes in the 1950s, and then he would, he would be walking the picket line. So um, I grew up... We, all five of us went to Catholic schools, at, well, to a Catholic school, grade school. And um, back then, we had to go to Mass six days a week, but we had off on Sunday. I mean, Saturday, Saturday, I'm sorry, Saturday. <laughs> I wish we had off on Sunday, you know. So anyway, I, um, I graduated from school, and I... Um, got accepted at Notre Dame, Maryland, which was an all-girls school back then. And I, I thought I would study science. And uh, unfortunately, when I went to my dad to fill out the financial aid forms, he told me that. I mean, he was a great guy, but, you know, he was a depression baby and left school in the fourth grade. He, he told me that women didn't need to go to college. But I had advocates and a big sister, and she talked him into it. So I went to Notre Dame of Maryland, and... <laughs> I was a commuter student, and uh, the funny thing is, by the second semester, I dropped out. And I think, when I think back to it, it was probably because I've always been pretty political, even when I was like 10 years old, and the war in Vietnam was raging. And it's really hard to say what it was like. It, it's, all, it's about as crazy as now, only thousands of young men are... And, and Vietnamese aren't dying. But, I mean, it, it was insane. It, it was just an insane time. And there was a draft, and working-class guys um, and poor guys were getting drafted, and they, a lot of them were getting sent to Vietnam. I had friends that resisted. Some of them got put in jail um, or went to Canada, both. 
So anyway, college started not to seem that important to me anymore. And um, I think that was the major thing that got, I got really politically active. Um, I didn't go back for that second year. Um, soon after that, I, I'm sorry, it's not a funny story, but <laughs> it is what it is. So anyway, um, so anyway, I left home. I, I just, I had to get out of there. It's, it's like, I had changed in the blink of an eye. I, I had been this good Catholic girl. I was a virgin until my first year of college. I, I, um, was a vet, the, uh, president of the senior class in my Catholic girls' school. And um, just like everything changed, I became a political radical. And uh, I, was, I just wanted to break out from my, my family because I had a really big, big family like on both sides of, the, of my mom and dad's family were all around the neighborhood. And also, I just, I think I had had it with the Holy Roman Catholic Church So um, anyway, I got an apartment in Charles Village, and this was old Charles Village. It's real different now, but uh, I mean, you can't imagine how things change over like you know 50, 60, 70 years. <laughs> so anyway, um, I got an apartment with another young woman um, 20, at 29th and St. Paul, and uh, I hung out with at, at that time. The, um, Hopkins was an all male school. It was, I'm the undergraduate. I'm amazed that people don't even know that now. But it was um, vast majority white guys from New England. um, And they, (laughs) they had, they had pedigree, prestige, money, you know, and, uh, can I say I wasn't there, but I hung out with a lot of them and Goucher students and other people at Levering Hall because there was an SDS there, Students for Democratic Society. So I was really involved with uh, with the war movement. So then, um, through these guys at Hopkins, I learned a lot from them. I, I met this local guy that had grown up in Charles Village. He was very different than them, um, he, and his mother had thrown him out on the street. I'm not sure why, but. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that big a, a problem. But anyway, I, I met him. Um, his name was David. He was tall, lanky. He had, I love people that have, like, open mouths, like when their mouths aren't tight, you know. <laughs> does anybody understand what I'm talking about? You know, yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, he was charming. And, and he, I never lived with him, but he, um, he, he had a rented room down the street, and we hung out together. I, I think our um, our soundtrack was um, "Happy Together." I don't know if y'all know that. It's a Beatles song from the from the '60s. And anyway, um, so I wasn't a virgin when I met him, but um, I didn't do very well in the diaphragm. The pill was out, but it was mostly only available to work to married people, so they wouldn't have a whole bunch of more kids. Uh, the IUD wasn't available until there were two IUDs that came out in '68. But uh, and David was a pool shark; he painted houses and did odd jobs. And so there was an old, there was this big pool hall down on um, North Avenue between Charles and St. Paul, and it's been torn down for for many decades. But he he took take me down there to make some money and show me off to his. Uh, 
just fooled all friends. <laughs> and, I mean, he was a sweet guy in a lot of ways. You know, really was. So anyway, of course, like everybody else, I got pregnant. And uh, <laughs> it's a miracle, you know. <laughs> I was a school nurse after I retired from Hopkins. And when the kids would come in with all these weird things that they just wanted to get out of class, I would always say, it's a miracle. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, um, I was pregnant. I wasn't like, I was 18. I, I wasn't ready to ha- have a kid. I, uh, I, did, I really didn't want to tell my family. I was working part-time, not, didn't have a lot of money. I was, you know, Pratt. And uh, so what happened was um, David was so streetwise. He knew a doctor, a uh, sort of shirt guy, um, probably Puerto Rican at the time that had an office in Charles Village with some other doctors, and he was a GYN. And we made this appointment with him. I went to the um, to get an exam. I was about eight to ten weeks pregnant. Um, I sort of went into sh- shock, you know, because like I knew I was pregnant. I had missed two periods, but on the other hand, when you hear it. It's a different story. Like, what am I going to do? We didn't have any money. We weren't ready for a kid. We weren't even sure if we were going to stay together, although you always think you're going to stay together when you're newly in love. But anyway, you know how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) So, So anyway, David came into the exam room. Something went down. He took care of business. He arranged to paint the doctor's house so that I could have my abortion. I mean, what a wonderful person. (laughs) And um, so anyway, we thought it was going to happen. Oh, I didn't tell you. This doctor, (laughs) the reason Dave knew him, even though Dave didn't do drugs, he did alcohol, was because kids in the neighborhood were getting uppers and downers which I don't know if you've heard that term before, but that's like (laughs) amphetamines, diet pills were big, you know, and uh, (laughs) and barbiturates. So anyway, he would somehow give these young men, that's, you know, so that was like sort of the end. Because most people that did abortions had a, you know, there was always something. So anyway, but I didn't didn't know because I didn't even know how to get an abortion. So anyway, um, we were supposed to have it done in the office like a week later. And then the guy got into trouble. <laughs> Some, you know, got into hot water with his practice. So then we arranged to have it done in the apartment that Mary and I share on 29th and St. Paul. So it was springtime. We got ready. You know, we had to have direct lights so he could see my cervix. And he brought his autoclave tools with him, and and we had to put pillows under my hips because we had a sofa. We didn't have, like, a, you know, anything high enough. So anyway, he came. Um, David was there, and so was Mary. Um, it was... I, I was relieved on a certain level that this was happening, but when it did happen, he brought no sedatives, I didn't have lidocaine like they do when I would help with, uh, with abortions in, at Planned Parenthood. Anyway, um, I had the, the abortion. I never had pain like I had that night. But it, was, it didn't last a whole long time. Um, 
and afterwards I bled some, heavy, then moderate, and, and I, I never got an infection. So one thing about um, the time, one of the beautiful things, was that a couple months later, um, I, David and I went out to his house, to the physician's house, and we had a picnic, and I sat and watched him paint the, the doctor's house <laughs> as in payment, which, I, which was, it was great, you know, it was great. <laughs> I mean, it was important to me because of the integrity to do something that you said you were going to do, you know. And then, um, you, you know, so we didn't stay together. We were together months after that, but then I moved to San Francisco, and uh, David was drafted to Vietnam. But he did make it back. And uh, he, like my husband, brought the ghost of Vietnam with him, of course, you know, and uh, but I I went to nursing school after that, and uh, when my two kids were um, grade school, and um, the first ten years I worked in a high risk pregnancy inpatient, and then labor and delivery, and um, a freestanding birth center in, in, in Upper Park Heights, and um, I worked at Planned Parenthood for a while. Helping with abortions, the recovery room, and then also the um, we had a vasectomy clinic that I ran uh, two two nights a, a month, which which was one. I don't know if they still have that, but it was great. The Popkins residence urology residents used to come over. So um, that's that's my abortion story. I don't want to share one thing with you. Now, Lord, you have that. And I do want to say that when I worked at Planned Parenthood, I felt it was a wonderful experience because it was like my love letter to give back to legal and safe abortions and also to abortion providers. It's, and I can't believe what's happening. But Anyway, I've been going, out, going to marches for, forever, <laughs> and uh, I take this with me. This is my second iteration but it just says that I'm RN and that um, when, when there's no access, rich women get abortions and poor working class women risk death. And I realized when I was doing this story that when I had my abortion, I was one of those poor working class women. And I hope we can get it back soon because women deserve human rights. Thank you. What I like about Anna's story is that, you know, there is this sort of humor in the fact that um, her boyfriend was able to get an abortion for her by trading his house painting skills. But there's also a very serious awareness that she has and that the story provides that she was a lucky one, Mm -hmm. right? That there were so many people who are in the same situation as she was and were not able to find a way to pay for abortion care. We'll be right back with another story. Support for WYPR's podcasts comes from Catholic Charities. Celebrating its centennial in 2023, Catholic Charities is the largest private provider of social services in Maryland. Learn more about this movement to change lives at cc-md.org. This next story is from Patricia, who uh, is going to be in the story just uh, revealing how difficult it is when you uh, are 
open to having an abortion, you need to have an abortion, and you don't have access to the resources to get the abortion um, without help. Take a listen. My name is Patricia Watson. Um, I grew up in a very, very different type of household. It was super strict. I couldn't even watch The Simpsons until I was like in high school. Um, we were slated to be the perfect family. Two kids, house, no dog though. And we didn't talk much. Um, the talking we did do was behind closed doors and it was kind of volatile, but on the outside we were perfect. So we never got to talk about sex and that was that. We were just told, don't do it. That was it. That was it. That was it. That was it. Just don't do it. Jesus will smite you if you do it. (laughs) So at 18, I was completely in love and I was like, oh, okay, this is what they're doing. So let me do it. And, uh, I got pregnant. I was laid to start the illustrious Morgan State University. You know, if you ain't a bear, you ain't there. You know how that is. But so I was laid to start there in the fall. And because I am extra, I did all my research to figure out what I was going to do. I called my insurance company. I was still on my parents' insurance. They told me, yes, they will cover it, but it's going to show on their EOB. Nah. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I did all the research. I went to tons of different clinics, about probably like 20 to get a whole price list. But I was about to go to college. I had no money. Fortunately, I was able to turn to my aunt. To me, my aunt was the it girl. She was the original alien superstar. Like, she was it. She was able to go to school on her own terms, get married on her own terms, have a kid on her own terms. She was who I aspired to be. So even though she's my dad's sister, she didn't subscribe to the Jesus everything type of mentality. She subscribed to the let's talk about it, let's be about it, I'm here for you type of, type of vibe. And I love that. So I went to her, and she was like, okay, what do I need to do? She talked to me. And got me through it emotionally. And then financially, she helped. And then Planned Parenthood helped as well. And it was a relief. It was, I knew that I could, I didn't know anything about life, much less being a parent. And that just wouldn't happen. Um, So I went on to Morgan at 21. I... Had I did have a baby. I had an amazing little baby, six pounds, Mikhail. And then at 24, I had another one, 12 pounds of baby. 12 pounds. Yeah. A baby. Spencer. Yeah. That's the tall 6'9 kid you see walking around here. Yeah. That's my 12-pound baby. Yeah. So at that point, I mean, by then... Those pregnancies were different. I kind of just knew that I would be okay. I kind of just had this feeling that, okay, I can do this. But I also knew after 12 pounds of baby and having to bring him home in a sweatsuit because he didn't fit the newborn clothes, I wasn't having no more kids. I knew it. I was like, nah, I'm good. 12 pounds? Nah. nah. It's a wrap for me. But they told me because I was 24, I couldn't get my tips side. I was like, oh. But I had a 12-pound <laughs> taller over there. They were like, no. I was like, okay. 
So I thought I would, I would be careful, and I was like, all right, okay. So I'm navigating, have this whole mother thing down, have two kids, have a good job. I'm a therapist. I'm like, all right, I got this. I was in a relationship with this guy, allegedly, and he had kind of a temper, and he was kind of like to knock my head between the stove and the fridge a couple of times, and as careful as I thought I was, I was not that careful, I guess, and I got pregnant, and I knew that there was no way in the world that I would bring a baby in with this monster. I couldn't. I was already trying to get out, and I could not. I could. I just couldn't. And I thought, because I was working for the great state of Maryland, that I had good insurance. Well, apparently abortions are not high on their uh, insurance level, and they don't really care about that because it wasn't really covered. So, once again, here come Planned Parenthood with their cape, saving me. <laughs> but not only did they save me, they also connected me with amazing resources like the Maryland Safe at Home program so I can get away from this lunatic who is now in jail. <laughs> but <laughs> but also the emotional resources that I needed to. And I, I, I sometimes look back at it and I, I think, would I have still done it at 18? Would I have still done it at 26? Yeah, I would. I would not be able to be the active mother I am today. I would not be able to be a therapist, a union leader, a union president, an activist, a community leader, and my son's biggest cheerleaders. I do not miss a beat when it comes to them. I am there for everything, no matter what. And I wouldn't be able to emotionally, financially. I wouldn't. And if you do the math, the first baby was six pounds, second baby was 12 pounds. So either we are doubling or we adding six. Nah. Nah. Uh-uh. So now, as a parent, I'm not only the biggest cheerleader for them, I'm cheerleader for their, their friends as well. I try to be to them what my aunt was to me. I try to be that safe space. So everyone is always like, you always have so many kids at your house. And I love it. I love being that person they can come talk to. I love talking to them about everything. Teenagers are wild, wild, but I love it. I love talking to them about sex, talking to them about safe sex and about options and about their future and about how to talk to their parents because I didn't have that. I wasn't able, the way I talk to my sons, I, would n I can't even talk to my mama now like that. Sometimes I have to remind her, ma'am, you know this is my house, so we do things differently here, shorty. You might want to go down the street. But I like it. And if I didn't make that brave choice, it's no doubt in my mind that I would not be here. I would not be able to tell my story. I would not be here to talk to my sons. I would not be here to talk to their friends and their girlfriends and anybody that wants to talk to me at all. I went on. My oldest son is in his third year at RIT, doing amazing. He was a valedictorian of his class. My youngest son, the 12-pound baby, is slated to graduate this year at the top of his class, and I would not be able to be that person to cheer them on and to tell them, it's okay. 
You don't have to be quiet about things. You can talk to people about things. You can make your own choices. Sometimes it's for you and sometimes it's not. But you have a choice and you have a voice. And I love you no matter what it is. And I'll be there for you no matter what it is. I'll be there holding your hand if you need it. And I'll be there to laugh if you need it. And I'll be there to cry if you need it. But I would not be that person and be able to do that if I didn't make those tough decisions. And I don't regret it at all. Thank you so much for listening today. Obviously, um, issues surrounding abortion are very much in the national conversation, and we we feel honored as a personal storytelling series to be able to share these stories with you. We want to thank Maureen Harvey, our producer. We want to encourage you to visit us at stoopstorytelling.com, where you can find past shows and podcast episodes. And please visit us on social media at Stoop Storytelling. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.